get started with our class uh, this morning as we continue on the study of our book of Revelations. Uh, I think everybody's agreed that so far everything's been pretty straightforward. I mean, a lot of people kind of avoid it, but we've seen everything is pretty, pretty much straightforward. Uh, and this is going to continue. The imagery may get a little scary at first, but we're going to see it play out and we're going to apply it to history events and we're going to see it's really nothing to be scary about and it's really nothing overly complicated. Uh, so we're going to continue on with that. But we've had uh, an entrance, and then we've had uh, two chapters devoted to the churches. Uh, then we've had two worship scenes, and now we're going to go on to the judgment. Uh, before we do that, we'll go ahead and go to God in prayer. If you'll bow with me. Dear Lord, our God and Father, Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, that you loved us enough to call us together as your children. Lord, that you put enough in us that we would recognize you as God and know that there is a creator. Father God, we thank you for your son and his pathway to salvation. And Lord, we thank you for the word that you left us behind, that we may come to know you, Lord, that we may have peace in this world. And Lord, that we may know your will and ways. Lord, we thank you for the blessed Holy Spirit that reveals it to us. And we ask that you bless us all together as we study your word, that you would give us ready understanding, help us divide it rightly. For this is our prayer in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're picking up with Revelations chapter 6. And then once again, I'll go through here uh, and read. Uh, that way people are listening to us online and uh, whatever, and uh, the podcasts, as they're driving their trucks and different things, they, they can't take time to read, so, and they can't hear you all when you read, so that's why we've kind of switched to this way. Uh, Revelation 6 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying within a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and the one who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard a living uh, creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that people would be kill, that people would kill one another, and a large sword was given to him. And when he broke the third seal, I heard a third living creature saying, "Come." I looked, and behold, a black horse, and the one who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like the voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, "A quarter of wheat for a denarius, and three quarters of barley for a denarius." And do not damage the oil and the wine. When the living, <clears throat> when the when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, "Come." And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and the one who sat on it had the name of death. And Hades followed with him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and plague, and by wild animals of the earth. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar. The souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they had maintained. And then they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain your judgment from avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? And the white robe was given to each of them. And they were told that they would rest for, that they were to rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and the brothers and sisters who were to be killed, even as they were, had been killed, was completed. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, there was great earthquake, 
and the sun became black as uh, became as black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig trees dropping the unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the eminent people and the commanders and the wealthy and the strong and every slave and every free person hid themselves in the caves among the rocks in the mud of the mountains. And they, were say, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the sight of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come and who is able to stand? <clears throat> All right. So we'll have uh, go by our usual way. We'll have a little introduction, and then we'll uh, break the verses uh, down apart, and then we'll look at how to apply this in our life. And our daily rituals uh, are often all the same. A lot of people love routine. I'm one of those people. I don't like things to change too much. I, I, I like my routine. Call it a rut if you want, but I like to dig right on in there. Uh, we wake up. We get washed up. We dress. We eat. Maybe go to the gym, and then off to work or whatever we're going to do. We expect our routines to be the same every day. However, each and every one of us has had some kind of disruption in those routines at some point along the day. Whether it's a flat tire, a sick child, a fender bender, a phone call from out of the blue with tragic news. Uh, situations like these interrupt our routines and, unwelcome and with unwelcome stress, even several uh, severe trials. Occasionally, these unexpected events can over turn our lives entirely. For most people, God's judgment will be an unexpected and unwelcomed disruption in life's routine with more than just minor irritation. The great tribulation that we're reading about here in, in Matthew 24 and 21 will affect more than just one family or one city or one nation. It'll affect everyone. <clears throat> the period of God's final judgment, whenever that may be, whether it was in the past or whether it's still yet to come, uh, or interrupt everyone. And we know this from passages like Luke 17 and 1 Thessalonians 5. Luke 17, 26 says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day of Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be the same in the days of Lot. It was the same as in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But the day uh, Lot left Sodom, fire, sulfur rained down from the earth and destroyed them all. Uh, scientists have actually found Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was destroyed just like the Bible said. The earth opened up, swallowed it up, rained fire and brimstone down them. So, again, the more they try to disprove it, the more they prove it. And the Bible tells us it will be just like this on the sand of the day of man was revealed. Now, whether it's happened in the past, as, as as we're going to be looking at with Rome or whether it's happening to venture, it's going to be the same. People don't know it's coming. They think, well, it's going to keep on and keep on, but there's going to come a time. And it may not even be this. A lot of us may not even make it to this. It may, but we're all going to have that judgment day when something happens and we drop dead. So, uh, Then Thursday Thessalonians says, Now, brothers and sisters, about the times, dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. As the labor pains of a pregnant woman, they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that the day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the night 
uh, children of light of day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not be, be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and be sober. It kind of compares it to the labor pains of a woman giving birth. A uh, woman's washing dishes or whatever, sitting watching TV, working, whatever case may be, and then, bam, it hits. You have no warning. You don't know what's coming. But then once it comes, you know what's coming. And it's the same way with this, the Bible tells us. But it says that we Christians won't be taken like a thief in the night. Now, he says no one will know. No one knows but God. But as children of God, we don't worry. We don't care. It's not going to overtake us and capture us off guard because we're ready all the time. We've trusted in God. We've got his word. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to be scared uh, whether uh, a lot of people are comparing these times to the end of times. If it is, it is. I mean, we're ready. I mean, the only thing we've got to worry about is getting our loved ones and family members ready. Other than that, we should have no stress or no worry about it at all. Some people completely deny that God would ever judge anybody for anything. After all, they reason or say, isn't God a loving God? Doesn't he abound in mercy? What happened to divine compassion and forgiveness? I hear this a lot, and I know some of you all do too. Clearly, God's coming judgment strikes at the very heart of this uh, argument, though. Our view of the nature and character of God himself, it's no wonder that people find so much that disturbing to them in the book of Revelations because they're forced to face that God is a loving God, but God will bring his judgment upon us and upon the earth. But when we discover that God's mercy and wrath work hand in hand, that God will bring about redemption through the judgment, we will have a much clearer and more balanced understanding of the God we love and we serve. So with that, we'll go ahead and get started into uh, chapter 6. Uh, of course, we know who the Lamb is. We say it was introduced to the Lamb earlier, and that was Jesus Christ. And the four living creatures are the seraphim and uh, the cherubims. Uh, then in verses 2 through 8, we are introduced to the horsemen. The four horsemen uh, usher in judgment against the world. I believe to be Rome. Could be wrong. It could be the future world or whatever, but I, I believe it to be Rome. There have been as much speculation about who these riders are and what they represent. I'm not going to tell you which one to believe or disbelieve. I'm going to give you the two or three major ones that, I, that hold some credibility to, and then you all make your own judgment. But like I said, for me, I could be wrong, but mine, my, my money's on wrong. Uh, some of these suppose the rider to be, the white rider or the white horse to be Christ or the gospel system. Uh, but one of the problems with this is the fact that when Christ returns, he will bring a permanent peace. And this rider does not, uh, what follows this rider, but war, death, pestilence, all follow him in quick succession. But now if this is the case and it is Christ, then the bow would represent the speed in which the message went out and spread across the world. And conquering and to conquer world represents the fact that it was succeeding and will continue to succeed and spread until Christ Jesus comes. The other possibility of the white rider or the white horse uh, is that this is a, is this the very image of the archer on a white horse would strike fear and terror into the hearts of the pro-Roman readers. The only mounted archer in John's time were the Parthians. It was them whose, uh, whose tactics and skills made, the Rome, uh, made them Rome's most feared enemy. Rome was scared to death of them. 
And uh, they always had in them the white horses that their armies would ride and stuff. So it, to them, to Roman people in John's time, this was the image that their minds would automatically jump to. Uh, the Old Testament uses the bow as a symbol of judgment and battle more generally. Uh, Romans readers would think of this eastern nation that had defeated Romans' armies several times in some recent wars. And our uh, Parthians were skilled archers was common knowledge to John and his readers. Uh, other writers uh, suggest that, suggested a dread of uh, Parthian invasion. Hence, ancient readers would have readily understood that their horsemen uh, meant conquering war was coming. That is, that the Parthians were coming to take over and to bring war to Rome. And the third possibility we'll look at is that the, uh, that the horse represents Rome itself. Uh, the system of government that God chose to use to help spread the good news. Uh, the white horse of the first uh, seal uh, represents Christ, then the, this red horse in the second seal, and the black horse and the pale horse in the third seal uh, may represent the, the, the woes that scourged mankind on account of their rejection of Christ. If the first seal represents Parthians, then this uh, th three seals must refer to the terrifying wars and conditions that followed their attack. And if the first seal is Rome, uh, I'm sorry, if the first white horse was Roman Empire during its golden age, then it would seem that the three seals, war, famine, and death, must represent the following periods after the decline of the Roman Empire when it started to faint away and go, and go into pieces and stuff. And uh, we're going to see that this kind of matches up pretty good with history as well. Uh, in the centuries uh, between 200 A.D. and 300 A.D., over 50 different uh, pretenders to claim to the throne of Rome. And instead of having strong rulers on the throne as they did in the past that allowed them to spread out and capture so much of the world, they were fighting among themselves uh, as to who would be emperor and through their war, a uh, hundred years of civil war followed. And what always follows a prolonged war, but famine, pestilence, and death. And all three of these kind of fit Rome too. The Roman Empire in that century lost more than half of its population uh, and started on its road to ruin. So this was no little, little small civil war. This lasted for a hundred years. And during that time, half of Roman uh, population is estimated that was dead. The red horse, uh, man's perversion of the gospel uh, and bloodshed that follows uh, martyrdom, persecution in Christ and the gospel system. If Christ is the first horse, then the red horse, uh, they say this is what it would mean, that, that uh, it's the persecution that followed that. If Rome is meant, then it's the color along with the sword and the symbol of judgment by war. In the Bible, red, the color is most associated with bloodshed. Hence, the red planet was named Mars uh, for the god of war. Uh, and it could have struck the chord with John's readers as well. Uh, that is, if this is meant, would fit bloody unrest that was uh, between 68 and 69 when three Roman emperors were successfully killed, one right after the other. Uh, black horse with scales. When we think of black, what do we think of? What's associated with black, even to this day? Morning. Usually if a widow's someone, you know, you dress in black when you go to a funeral, dress black associated with mourning, and it's the same here. Uh, the scales in the writer's hand indicate rationing, 
or at least the caution of merchants to get the very last cent of uh, the food they got. Uh, barley and wheat were basic staples in Rome because a quarter of barley was a day's sustenance and denarius was a day's wage. A man with a family would, uh, would, ha- would have to buy the cheaper of the barley. So they're saying that the wheat was equal to a day's pay. So if you're a man and you got a family, you're not going to be able to wheat. Wheat was better. Wheat is what you wanted. Wheat was more nutritious. But if you got it, your family's going to starve to death. So they would have to buy the cheaper barley. Even though uh, three quarters of barley was hardly enough to daily food for a whole family to assist on, in many peasant families with large numbers of children, several children would die of starvation. Because even, even with buying the barley, if you've got these kids and they all did have multiple kids because you needed kids. You needed kids back in to run the farm and everything else. It wasn't like nowadays where most people just got one or two. Most families had several. And so you would have to sit there and watch your children die. Is what this is, images and load them to. You'd have to watch them starve to death. The famine also created a high inflation rate. This uh, wheat costs more than 10 times the average price of wheat. Uh, so prices went up 10%. We see this happening now in our society with the gas things and all the things going on. We've seen our grocery bills go up. I mean, I think everyone's seen the grocery bills just about double from what you're used to paying. And it's no different. This is the image that John is driving home here, except for here, instead of double, it's 10 times. So uh, we see that. Oil and wine were wide, widely used, by, but not essential like the wheat and barley. Oil was especially used for anointing the head, washing the body, and lighting of lamps. Wine was also mixed with, equal, with water in equal parts for meals. The selective uh, continuance of such items, uh, which are you know, of low importance, which staples uh, compared to the barley and stuff. So he's saying here that the people, the rich, the well-off, they're not going to feel it like we feel it. And that's true today. If, if, if you're well-off, if you're rich, the, our leader, political leaders, they pass all these things, they don't feel what we feel because they've got the money, they've got the power, they're able just to laugh it off. And that's kind of what they're alluding to here with the uh, wine and bar, uh, oil. And also uh, because uh, the Roman eaters, readers would understand this too, that Domination uh, had a very unpopular law he passed. He passed a law that no more vineyards could be planted. And in fact, his law also required many of the vineyards that was planted to be rooted up and chopped up because... He didn't want the inferior products. He wanted Worms wine to succeed to kind of capture the market and stuff of that nature. So again, the, the older people or the people in like Jerusalem would, would be the ones suffering. <clears throat> uh, the pale horse death. The pale horse death results in the war and famine. A fourth part of the Roman Empire killed uh, in which wild beasts aided, the Bible tells us. The Roman Empire in its century of uh, civil war from 200 to 300 referred to by the second seal suffered colossal loss in population followed by large scale, uh, large increases of wild animals. You don't have people out there hunting. You don't have any people running the wolves off from the sheep and all these things. So the wild animals are going to continue to increase. And then these same wild animals finding these dead bodies lying around start eating them. And once they get eating them, they find, hey, this is, this is an easy food source. Then let's do this. And so they start attacking and killing the population. 
And uh, we've seen this in modern days, uh, even now in India. Whenever there's a large tsunami or uh, something like that, some kind of thing, and the people get left, the tigers get used to eating the human bodies. And then they start attacking people. And so they have to go out there and find these animals and kill them. Uh, there's a real popular movie, uh, The Lion in the Darkness, about these lions in Africa who did the very same thing. They got used to attacking people, and they were wiping out whole villages. So this is not nothing you know, new or nothing unheard of. But this is what the Bible's saying, that these wild animals will get used to these bodies, and then they'll start attacking and killing off people too. Uh, one of the best examples, or not best perhaps, but one of the most severe examples in modern history is the Ramree Island, uh, which is during the World War II. Uh, British Army intelligence estimated that over a thousand Japanese soldiers were hunted and killed by crocodiles on this island. They kind of was attacked, they withdrew into the jungles, into the swamp areas. Crocodiles got real used to them. They estimate that it killed over a thousand of the Japanese enemies. And these, you know, had their guns, swords, and everything else. Doesn't matter to a crocodile. And it's the same way then. So this is kind of the imagery that Revelations is painting for us. Uh, we go on to the fifth seal. Look and notice where, we do, where do we find the martyrs in heaven? Where did it say the martyrs were at? Those who died for Jesus Christ and held firm to his name. They say there was under the altar of heaven. Can you think of a more sacred, more special place in heaven that you would ever want to be? So that gives great comfort and would give great comfort to those in John's time who was reading this, who were being put in the arena, being set on fire to light gardens, who were being killed for sport. All these things that was going on to them, this would give them great, great comfort. Look, not only are you dying for a worthy cause, not only does God love you, but when you die, you're going to a special place. You're going to the Holy of Holies. You know, that's the, the, in, the, in the earthly temple. There was the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in there. And even then you had to tie a rope to him. Because if he wasn't just right or if there was sin in the camp, God would strike him down dead. And you couldn't go in there and get him, so you had to get that rope and you had to pull him out of there. But here we find the martyrs, those who died for God and his word, who upheld his word, they don't need no rope. They're in the Holy of Holies. They're on God's altar itself. And so this to them would give great peace and great comfort. Uh, it talks about all the earth again. Uh, I believe that this was Rome uh, or it could be another unknown empire yet to come. Could be us today. Whatever the case, it doesn't really matter. What we're looking at here is the imagery and how it could play out and how it could fit. Uh, we've seen the, these wars, the civil wars that have played out in Rome and how they kind of match up. But it could be the same with us today. Russia or China could invade. We could be in a war right here. And, and the same exact scenario could fit in here. So again, God says we're not going to know when this is coming. We don't know. It could have been in Rome. It could still yet to be. doesn't matter. What we're looking at here is to see the imagery, how it could apply, what it could mean. And it's nothing scary. It's nothing supernatural other than God's prophecy. But it's nothing to be scared of or confused by. Yes. Will this take place before Jesus comes, or is this all in a heavenly realm? This takes place before Jesus comes. Before Jesus yes. comes. Yes. This is all people still living on the earth. Uh, Jesus hasn't come to his final judgment yet. This, to me, is Jesus and God releasing their wrath on Rome, who has persecuted the church, who has destroyed the Christianity, and now they're paying the price. 
But it could just as easy apply to the whole world. That God has given the whole world this thing and we've rejected it for the most part. And so God's judgment is coming. And this is what God's judgment is going to look like. Before Jesus comes. Before Jesus comes. Okay. And Ben, I'm not sure that it don't describe both things. I, I really and it could. It very well could. I believe it describes things that have happened or are to come. But also paints a picture of heaven too. Uh, I think that it's the same thing, you know. I, I, I just can't help but think that. You know, these are the this is Christianity going out into all the world and conquering the world, which it did. This is Rome going out into the world and conquering the world, which it did. Those those are both identical things. This is the death and destruction that came after the conquering. You know, Rome death and destruction came to them, even though they were the big boys on the block. Death and destruction came to the Christians with the martyrs, you know. And so I think it applies. I think it's it applies almost equally to both of them. Yes. And I think it tells things that are still to come, like you said, it could still, you know, the United States and China get into a big nuclear war or something like that, you know, and all of the problems that come with that. But it also refers to the end of time, you know, that Jesus will claim it all, you know, and he'll clean it up. He'll clean up the mess. Yes. So I think that it, it's fascinating to read about and to think about, you know. But like you said, it's not scary for Christians. It should be scary for anyone that's not a Christian. It should be very scary. And that they need to realize that this is coming, whether some of it's already come to pass or not, the end of time is coming. And like you said, you're in the time of the day you die. That's it. You're, their, their hope is over at that point, you know. So that's all I have yeah. to add. And if you look at how, how does God say the end of the world will come? I meant, how will it be destroyed? I read. How will the world be destroyed? Fire and imminent heat. Before he did it with flood to purge it. Before he says, now it's coming fire. He says, everything will be burned up. If you look at, to me, that's that's nuclear war. That's nuclear holocaust coming to the world. And it could very well be. So I mean, we know that it's coming. We know all of our judgment day is coming. Again, you know, it's nothing to be scared of for the Christian. And that's what John is trying to reassure us. That yes, you may get persecuted. Yes, you may get stepped on. But God's going to hold these people accountable. You may even get killed. But look, you're going to have this special place in heaven. Hold fast to my name to the end. And no one will take your crown from you. And we're going to see this theme throughout, throughout the Bible. But then I disagree with you about the nuclear holocaust. There could be a nuclear holocaust. I've no question about that. But the world will not be destroyed by man. God alone will destroy the world. Yeah. He speaks when the trumpet sounds, the voice of the archangel. And he says it's over. The dead Christ will be raised, and then the world will be annihilated. Okay? And you can't annihilate the world with nuclear weapons. You can tear it up, and you can. Mr. Churchill says we can make the, the, the rocks, the, you can make the, the rocks bounce, I think the way he said uh, But man will not destroy the world. God will always destroy the world. Now, they may. Now, I'm not saying they won't mess it up. <laughs> that's why. Yeah. I believe that's all my heart. God alone will destroy the world. And when he destroys it, it's. It's not partially so it's 100% true. And never to exist ever again. Any other comments before we continue on? Or questions? Let's see. Where we stop off here? Uh, again, Earth here uh, could be Rome or the known world empire men. Because uh, that kind of, uh, this controlled basically all the known world to them at this time. Uh why would they ask to take uh, 
Why would they ask to take revenge on, say, the U.S. or Canada, Mexico, Jamaica, all these places were, were not persecuting the church who was not yet even established in the church. So again, I think he's talking about here at this time is meant Rome. Uh, and it says, uh, the martyrs are told to wait. They ask, when are you going to avenge us? When are you going to take place of this? And uh, John's readers will be the same thing. You know, we're suffering all this. Why, God? Why are you waiting? And we see the same, uh, same thing in Genesis 15 and 16 where it says there's still some work to be done where God says the iniquity of the Amalekites, I think, said it's not yet filled up for you to take over the land. He says the time is not here and this is the same thing he's telling them now. There's still work to be done. There's still those who are being saved and final chances to be given. Uh, so this seems to symbolize the persecution of the church already. There had been uh, many thousands of martyrs from the persecutions of Nero and domination, and unnumbered thousands more were to come. Uh, there were ten imperial persecutions, not to mention those of the Roman church uh, that came later on that went after the Christians and also the uh, Islamic people and everything else as well. Uh, comfortable people may not like the language of this passage, but oppressed people and suffering people who trust in God can resonate with the promises of vindication as in Old Testament uh, and often throughout history. The blood of the sacrifices was poured out on the base of the altar. Uh, we see this in Leviticus and many other times. This is where when people would sacrifice the, all, the animals in old world time, the blood would be poured out upon the sacred altar. The martyrs are thus viewed as sacrifices. Like the Passover lamb of Revelations 5 and 6, martyrs were also viewed as sacrifice. Uh, we see this in Philippians 2 and 7. The very fact that their blood uh, cries out for vindication or retribution, justify, justice could ultimately be done and the press uh, delivered until God arose to the judgment of the earth. How long, they ask? until the end and are told that they just have to wait until the full measure of the righteous dead is com uh, com completed. Jesus and Paul also earlier stressed that, God, that good news must be preached to all the nations with attendant suffering for, uh, suffering for the witnesses uh, involved in, in such a proclamation before the end. So the word had to go out for everyone and they had to continue to endure, endure these things so that the message could be given out. God could not just simply wipe out Rome. Rome was the best chance for the gospel measure to be carried out. Rome had uh, created the postal system. Rome created roads, roads which are still being used to this day. I've, when I went over in Europe, I've been on some of these roads. They're still working to this day. Uh, we watched that show, uh, The Curse of Oak Island, where they're digging up this poor island of death looking for treasure. But they have went over to Portugal and all these places. These Roman roads are still in place. Uh, and so God used Rome, Roman's empire, to spread this gospel throughout the world. And also even the persecution. If God hadn't let the Roman persecute the church, the church would have never spread. Right. Most people are going to stay right in our little community. We, like for us, example, out of all the churches, we, the churches here, Richmond, Danville, how many people do we know that go out and spread the gospel? Other than Brian Hall, who else do we know that goes out and actually spreads and carries the message? One, one or two people for all these churches combined, that's not very many. And it would have been the same in Romans Empire. Had the persecution not forced everyone to spread out, 
The message would have been very slow in going. Uh, verses 12 through 17, the sixth seal. Uh, and here we see some images, earthquakes. Uh, earthquakes, oftentimes in the Bible, uh, in mean change in civil and religious uh, constitutions and leadership, a shakeup, if you will. Same with the sun and moon and stars. Uh, these were often used in the Bible as rulers, dignitaries, and religious leaders. Uh, so, and mountains, the symbol of stability, we see this taken uh, from Rome as well. So all these images of the, the earth, moon, and stars, and all these things being shaken like fig trees and cast to the earth, and this upheaval, this is just talking about the great upheaval that's coming to Rome. Rome is no longer going to be this world power. It's going to be shaken to its core. The leadership's going to fall. It's going to be broken up. And later on, as we continue our study, we'll see Roman broken into ten little, little bitty empires, and it'll never be ever be put back together again. So again, this imagery seems kind of strange and kind of to us, but to the people of John's time, they would have understood this perfectly. And we've got to look at it through their eyes, so to speak, too, to know what they're talking about. And, and it does. Every, we get. And it, it does come that way now. Every now and then you'll we'll get a, what's called a blood, a blood moon. And the moon will be kind of red from the sun and stuff. Yeah. And that's what this imagery is. It's, it's real scary to people. But it, it's just talking about the, the death and destruction that's coming. Yeah. The moon turned to blood. Like I said, we've seen the moon. Uh, representing uh, the, uh, the state of Rome and governments and things like that. So when we see the moon turn red with blood, it's going to get shooken up. There's going to be a lot of slaughter. And like, again, we've seen you know, 50 different rulers that were killed in during these civil wars and stuff. So that, that's kind of what it's referring to. like the taxes we we all hate to pay to every one of us hate to pay taxes and they waste a lot of our money but also a lot of good comes from it roads uh police departments fire departments water sanitation all these things without taxes would be non-existent so yes i hate paying taxes just as much as everybody does but it's for our good for our benefit uh in some respects a lot of this language that we're looking at about this destruction we see it uh kind of referred to again or repeated in the same language as Battle of Armageddon. 
Also, Jesus used similar language in speaking about the time of His coming again. Uh, in Matthew 24 and 29, uh, 30, Luke 21 and 26, Isaiah had used the same language talking about the fall of Babylon. In Isaiah 13 and 10, Ezekiel, in predicting the fall of Egypt, uh, used the same language. So, And uh, we see this often used out throughout the Bible. Joel, Acts, all these people are using this kind of the same language. So it's nothing new. And it's the same stuff that's been used on again. Again, uh, people talk about Revelation. Is it real or is it symbolic? Yes, it's, it's real, 100% real. You find out what the symbols mean and you believe it 100%. So that's the key to everything is find out what these symbols mean, not taking the symbols literally. It's not a big, giant, you know, fig, the stars aren't going to shake a fall like a fig tree. Uh, the moon's not going to be run overrun with blood and all these things, but it's all symbolic. But, the set, but it will 100% happen just exactly like God says. Whatever this seal may refer to, it seems like the prediction of upheavals in the Roman Empire uh, kind of fit in there. The empire ceased its persecution of the church. Emperor Constantine became Christian uh, in AD 312 and issued an edict of toleration in 1313. He made Christianity the religion of his court in AD 325 and he issued a general uh, exhortation to all embrace Christianity and moved his capital to Constantinople. Theodos in uh, AD 378-395 made Christianity the state religion of the empire. And church membership uh, compulsory in 3D, 395, the emperor was divided, uh, the empire was divided, the west with Rome, its capital, these with Constantinople, its capital, and this was the beginning of the breakup of the mighty world empire that had for 300 years tried so hard to destroy Christianity. So we see all this upheaval coming, all these things shaking up. We see the government getting shook up. We see it breaking in two. We see one side embracing Christianity and further spreading the gospel, and the other side will continue to fight it, but not like it did before. So now that we've looked at all this stuff and seen all these different things and all these possibilities, I know it's a lot to throw at you. Again, I don't want to try to run every rabbit to ground because there's, there's a thousand different things that could be. I'm just going to, like I said, give you the top two or three. And whichever one you decide to believe, doesn't matter because it's all the same. It all means the same thing. So how do we, can we apply this or what can we take away from this chapter uh, that can help us in our Christian walk today? Well... We can know God through His judgments. How can we uh, personally respond to the details of the judgment scene in the first six seals? I want to highlight three important truths about the Lord our God revealed in this dramatic text of Scripture. First, the warning itself demonstrates God's love for grace. I'm not, per I'm not perfect. No one is, uh, is, is, is perfect. But uh, I'm not a perfect father. But in parenting my child... Uh, when she was young, I resisted the urge to suddenly lash out in anger or arbitrarily punish her for wrongdoing without giving her an opportunity to correct that behavior. Good parenting sets clear boundaries as well as clear consequences in those boundaries are crossed. In many cases, it involves warning when the child starts uh, veering off the right track. In the same way, God reveals far in advance the seriousness and severity of his future judgments against unbelief and against sin. His judgments never occurred prematurely. 
This demonstrates his grace in allowing people an ample opportunity to heed the warning to turn to faith and to his son. Uh, and we can take great comfort in that. People want to know, well, how can such a loving God? Well, he's warned us. He's told us over and over again. If he doesn't combine the pun- if he doesn't bring the punishment promised, then everyone he's punished in the past has got an argument to say, you're not just, you're not fair. You're not, uh, but he's warned us. It's like Jesse, uh, my little girl, when she was little, she kept wanting to feed her. She got a grilled cheese. She wanted to feed it to the VCR all the time. Feed it. And I told her no, no, and no. And finally, the fourth or fifth time, I didn't catch her, and she did it. And I, I swatted her little butt. Now, she cried. I didn't now. I mean, it was, it was like that. But I, I might have cried more than she did. I don't know. <laughs> but, but she knew it was coming. She, it didn't catch her off guard. She knew it was coming. And then after that, she knew, hey, I've got boundaries. I can't go this far, or I'm going to get swatted. And so that's, that's the way it's got to be with God as well. And Ben, you know, I, I think of a blessing of those who died in the Lord. If you died at 30 as a faithful Christian as a member of the Lord's church, that would be a thousand million times better than if you lived to be 95 and you died a hopeless uh, sinner without God. Don't you agree? Absolutely. I mean, it's a million times better. And uh, we, we misunderstand that sometimes. Every little child that ever dies young, and it's terrible. I'm not trying to. It's terrible. It's terrible for the mom and the dad and everybody concerned. It's absolutely terrible. But I know without any question at, at all in all, those babies will be with the Lord for you. And that's fascinating to me. They will never, ever be distressed. They'll never be hungry. They'll never be lonesome. They'll never be anything except in the arms of Jesus. And that's fantastic. That, that makes me happy. So. That's what you're saying a while ago. Don't be scared. Don't be nervous. Die in the Lord, and you'll so you will forever be in the Lord. You know, and the Lord will present His church to God, and we will be in heaven. And we we underestimate heaven. Yeah, we absolutely we think this is heaven. This might be pretty good, and it is for most of us. It's pretty good, but it is not heaven. And we need to quit underestimating heaven. Yes. Well. Very true. Amen. Yeah. Uh, the second thing that jumps out at me is uh, each series of judgment grows in severity. Although God would certainly be justified in ending the world in one quick flash, He mercifully allows numerous opportunities for repentance. Even after the judgment begins, again, this demonstrates something important about the character of God. He is long-suffering, patient, and merciful. As soon uh, as such, not only does he act out of his holiness and righteousness in judging the wicked, but he also acts out of love and grace, even allowing the persistent wicked people to repent. The Bible tells us throughout scriptures that when the wicked man rep- repents of his wickedness, none of his wicked deeds will be remembered. It's all gone. 
You can be most evil, mean Jeffrey Dahmer, Marilyn Manson, Adolf Hitler. All these people, if they was to repent, come to know Jesus, everything they done would be gone. And God says, you know, I'm a God of first or second, first and second, third, fourth chances over and over again. Uh, third, God's judgments are completely under His control, whether they are enacted through natural disasters, through depraved, uh, disobedient human beings. God never compromises His sovereignty. In the book of Revelations, we find that uh, initial action bringing judgment originates in heaven. There are only <clears throat> then and only then are the actors of the earth commanded to follow, followed, or are allowed to act. The order guarantees that God's judgments are tempered with His grace, that they remain in complete harmony with dual purposes established in kingdom and ushering in His rightness. Unlike, unlike the acts of unrighteous humans, God's actions never spiral out of control or do more damage than He intended. As always, He's the ultimate purpose demonstrates His matchless power, glory, even though justice, and even through justice and wrath. So things may seem like they're out of control. Things may seem like there's, there's no, it's all chaos and stuff, but it's not. God's got it all planned out. God's working it all to His good. He's promised us that over and over in the Bible. Romans 8, you know, I cause all things to work together for the good for those who love and seek the Lord. He's, you know, it may seem like things are going to trouble. It may seem like our government's crooked or all these things are happening, but it's all within God's plan. There's a reason behind it. We can't hope to know the reason. We can't hope to see the big picture. These people getting killed in Rome couldn't hope to know what was going on to this day, that, that the message would be taken all across the whole world. But we, just like them, have to put our trust in God, know where we're going, knowing that this is not the end. This world is not the end all be all. This world is our training ground, our proving ground to get us into character, to develop our character, to mold us into what we need to be to enter into heaven spiritually. And as Sandy said, you know, this, this world is the only hell we'll know. When we're done with this world, this is the only pain, this is the only heartache we'll know. When we're gone on, there will be no more arthritis. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more sin. All this stuff will be gone. And so we look right forward to that. Uh, like Paul says, you know, I'm hard-pressed to know what to do. And I know it's good for you that I stay here and help you and, and guide you all through this and teach you all this. He said, but it's far better for me if I would die and go on to heaven. And that's the way it is with us, you know. Thank you all for your comments and concerns and uh, I mean, uh, and attention. Thank you.